0: It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means AB
1: 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not; Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield AB review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the AB Site. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindtheknife.org, where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos. Register for free CME and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here behind the knife, please leave
0: us a five star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this.
2: Okay, so so all of trauma starts off with what? ABCs. That's right. Or A. So, so first pointer, when they, whenever they give you a question of you're evaluating a patient who just comes in, the answer is usually A for airway. That's the first part of the primary survey. So, so the primary survey is ABCD, and that's, that's focused on identifying only life-threatening or major pathology. So everyone's familiar with airway breathing circulation. We won't get into that too much. Disability. So,
1: so, Kevin, what is disability? What are we, exactly are we doing when we get to D? Right. When we refer to the primary survey, there's uh, two aspects of disability. Uh, it's the GCS and the, the pupillary exam. Okay, good. And what are we looking for on D? What life-threatening pathology?
2: Uh, intracranial hemorrhage. Good. We're looking for uh, intracranial pressure rising. So, GCS in pupils. And you might get a question that asks... What component of the GCS is the most useful or most predictive in terms of uh, outcome?
0: Uh, I believe that's your motor function is the most predictive.
2: Yeah, so the, so the motor score has actually been shown to be almost as predictive as the entire GCS. There's often a question where they'll give you all the components and ask you to calculate a GCS. So just just make sure you remember the scoring of the GCS. Um, and obviously the, the old adage, a GCS of less than 8... Intubate. Intubate. I think that's that's almost always a question. Okay, so you get to your GCS and pupil exam, and you have a unilateral fixed pupil. We'll say the left pupil is fixed and
1: dilated. What does that make you worried about? I'm worried about um, that there is herniation on the left side of the brain. Good. So, so the fixed dilated pupil, unilateral, remember it's indicating pathology
2: on that side. So in that scenario, it would be a, a left... Intracranial, usually hemorrhage that's causing compression of the optic nerve. Okay, patient with bilateral pinpoint pupils. So, so probably most commonly would be narcotic, narcotic use, but if you have bilateral pinpoint pupils from a significant brain injury, this is, this is a less common, okay, so, so it's from pontine hemorrhage. Mm. It's, it's one of the only ones that will give you pinpoint pupils, and I just remember it as the P's, pinpoint pupils pontine. Okay. So we already talked about a head injury, GCS of less than eight. So one of the things we always need to know about is who should get an intracranial pressure monitor. So, so who would be a
1: candidate for an ICP monitor? So someone with a severe head trauma that has a intracranial bleed or concern for intracranial hypertension and someone that you cannot get a good exam on. Uh, and so I think generally with a GCS less than eight would be a person that would qualify.
2: Good. So, so, yeah, those are the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, GCS less than eight, with an abnormal head CT. The, the, there are additional guidelines for even with a, with a normal head CT, but if they have a GCS less than eight and they're older or they have unilateral uh, localizing signs, but, but generally anybody with a GCS less than eight and they have an abnormal head CT, that's criteria for an ICP monitor. And what kind of ICP monitor can, can we use? Uh, Where well, can they place that?
0: Well, they can, I mean, they can place it at the bedside in the ICU. You can place it. I mean, what areas of the brain? Oh, into the ventricles. Okay, um, so that would be called. Um, and, uh, uh Intraventricular uh, drain. Yep, or a ventriculostomy. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about that is you can drain fluid off of it if you, if you need to. Exactly. Um, they can place it, uh, in the, um, e- epidural space. Um, but i think the one i'm, I'm most familiar with is the one that they place in the in the
2: ventricle. Yeah, so ventriculostomy allows you to drain csf so it can be therapeutic. Uh, but if we say they're placing a bolt, which is probably one of the more common, where are they actually placing that?
1: Is it just intraparenchymal?
2: Yeah, just intraparenchymal. You you can put it anywhere in the brain and get the pressure cuz they equalize, but but a generally a bolt is intraparenchymal, a ventriculostomy is in the ventricle. Okay, the golden rule of head trauma or or i'll give you i'll give you the question. Um, you have a patient who's got a bad brain injury, and they're going to ask which of these factors would most affect their outcome or, or be the biggest factor in having a worse outcome. And they'll give you a list of things like, say, hypernatremia, hyponatremia, hypotension, acidosis, or temperature of 39.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think they're getting at uh, avoiding secondary injury with brain injury. So hypotension and hypoxia I think would be the two big things. Good. Good.
2: Yeah, so any, any drop in blood pressure, any desat. And those are obviously things you focus on in managing these patients is you want to keep their blood pressure elevated and you want to avoid any desaturations. Okay, so, so as we talked about, the D is looking for signs of elevated intracranial pressure. So what would be some of those signs at the bedside of a patient who has elevated intracranial pressure or is developing high intracranial pressure
1: right so you'd look for unilateral bilateral pupil dilatation Uh, you look for cushing's triad um, which you would see um, bradycardia hypertension and altered respiratory pattern Um, they could have motor posturing uh, which would be very concerning one of the more likely and then a rapid uh, decline in their mental status yeah
2: excellent and and cushing's triad that that's a pattern you, you will see in almost no other trauma patient the bradycardia and hypertension, as well as the altered
1: respirations. Good. And what should we do with that patient? So uh, there's multiple, um, you know, potentially they need to go to the operating room uh, to get their uh, craniotomy. But, but just um, in, in general, can can we start treating ICP based off that physical exam? We can. Okay. Um, Good. So we can elevate the head of the bed, we can uh, ventilate them to a, a PCO2 of 35, um, you can use sedation and paralysis, you can give them mannitol or hypertonic saline, um, okay. like some of the main methods used. Great, and, and we'll get to how to approach that in a minute, but, uh, but the point is you
2: start treatment right away, oftentimes they'll give you a question that has some of those factors, and, and the answer is not go get a head CT and then base your treatment. It's not rush to the OR blind. It's you start your ICP management and then, you, you know, get your imaging and get neurosurgery involved. So classic questions on types of head bleeds. Okay, the, the kid who's hitting the head with a baseball and he's not feeling great, vomits a couple times, but he's awake and GCS 15. And then suddenly he declines and he's a GCS of three. What's the answer?
0: So that's an epidural hematoma. That's your classic uh, lucid interval that you will clinically experience with that. And that's from a damage to uh, generally the middle uh, meningeal artery. Great. And what does that look
2: like on head CT? You have the uh, typical crescent shape on the head CT. Yeah, and, and so it's a very focal and limited right. lesion because the epidural the attachments lines. will keep it in yeah. place, or it's also called lenticular. Lenticular. Um, okay, now you have a 90-year-old, say they're on Coumadin, they fell and hit their head and they've got a skull fracture. What What's their intracranial bleed going to be?
1: Right, this is the classic uh, subdural hematoma um, where they tear the bridging veins. And this, um, I'm forgetting the name for it, but this is the long, thin sort of um, bleed along the... Um, just underneath the dura. Yes, cross
2: the suture line. Yes, yeah, so, so it'll typically go along the whole hemisphere of the brain. And and which of those two has a better outcome? Epidural or subdural? Uh, the epidural hematoma does. Yeah, epidural has a much better outcome. You know, it's it's something you can put a burr hole in, drain it, stop the bleeding. They're usually better. The subdural has a much worse outcome. It's usually because there's much more underlying brain injury okay now you have a patient who is the high speed motor vehicle collision let's say they starred the windshield and their gcs is seven what's their likely intracranial process
0: uh so these are uh, typically intraparenchymal contusions intraparenchymal hemorrhages okay great and that's that's probably that's the most common
2: injury we see much more common than epidural or subdural and what's your management for that
0: uh, avoiding secondary cause, uh, secondary secondary brain injury. Yeah, good.
2: Yeah. These these are not typically managed
0: by any surgical intervention. Okay, and then just to
2: round it out, the the spontaneous bleed, the person who has the worst headache of their
0: life. Yes, yeah, so that's a, a hemorrhage in the, the subarachnoid, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, great. All right,
2: well, let's move on to intracranial pressure, which we already mentioned a bit. So the the uh, formula that we always use
1: re- relating to intracranial pressure is what? So it's your cerebral perfusion pressure. So it's kind of the pressure that reaches the brain. Uh, and this is the way you calculate this is the mean arterial pressure uh, and subtract the intracranial pressure.
2: Good. And in this formula, you can adopt this to any compartment, right? The, it's just a compartment syndrome, just like any compartment. So, And the compartment perfusion pressure is always going to be What's the pressure in that compartment versus what's the driving pressure, driving, driving brain, driving blood into that compartment? So why do we care
1: about CPP, cerebral perfusion pressure? What's it telling us? It's, it's telling you how much uh, blood pressure is actually uh, reaching the brain cells, and you generally want it uh, greater than 60 to know that you're getting adequate perfusion.
2: Okay, so so greater than sixty would be about the absolute minimum we would accept. We'd like it if it's seventy or better. So if you, if you think about somebody who has a net, say they have a map of eighty, right? If once their I speed gets above ten, they're under that seventy number. But but what would we really want to measure? What are, we're using CPP as a surrogate for something? What are we using CPP as a surrogate for? Because we don't really want to know about pressure, right? Flow we want to know about blood flow so cpp is a surrogate for cerebral blood flow which is what if we could measure that directly we would really want to know so and and sometimes there's a question about what cpp is actually trying to give you okay so and we want our cpp above 60 pressure preferably above 70 how about our icp
0: uh, well, generally, you know, if we have a, a, a ventriculostomy or some type of intracranial pressure monitor, we want to try and keep those pressures less than 20. Good. And and obviously,
2: the lower than 20, the better. Uh, once it gets above 20, that's typically the threshold for treating. Uh, of course, you'll also base that on your CPP measure. Okay. So, and there's some things that can affect cerebral blood flow and, and thereby cerebral perfusion pressure. But what's the major regulator of cerebral perfusion?
0: Yeah, I've seen this one on the on the test a, a couple times. It's pretty common. So this is your uh, PCO2 is the major regulator of cerebral perfusion.
2: Good. And there are some other factors like acidosis, like temperature. But, but the PCO2 is by far the major regulator of cerebral perfusion. And it's also one of the most reliable interventions you can do to lower ICP.
1: Is, is that based on arterial dilatation?
2: Yes. Or? So, so if you hyperventilate somebody, what's going to happen to their
1: ICP? You hyperventilate them, their ICP should go down. Good. Uh, but, of course, the question is, why is it going down? So vasoconstriction of the arteries.
2: Yeah. So decreasing you're decreasing PCOSD. the cerebral blood flow, right, which lowers the pressure. But you have to remember person's got a brain injury is decreasing their cerebral blood flow necessarily good no yeah well to a a certain point so you have to remember you will lower the icp but you're doing it by decreasing the blood flow to the brain to some extent and the corollary to that being if you let their pco2 rise then what's going to happen
1: if their pco2 rises then they're going to have uh, hyperperfusion um, of their brain. Yeah. So they'll get vasodilation, they'll get increased flow to the
2: brain and typically that will raise their ICP. Okay. And so but but in you right now, if we hyperventilated you or, you know, gave you a bunch of oxycodone and let your CO2 go up to 90, yeah, or dropped your pressure to a MAP of 50, your cerebral blood flow would be about the same. And why is that? Uh, because of autoregulation. Good. And what happens in somebody with severe TBI?
1: Uh, they lose that ability to autoregulate their pressure. Good. And so, so that means
2: that their their cerebral perfusion pressure is directly dependent on the mean arterial pressure, which is, again, why we focus so much on keeping the mean arterial pressure up, because uh, whereas there's, there's almost no relationship between a normal status and a brain injury, it's a direct reflection. Okay, so we talked a little bit about ICP. And now you have this patient who they've got Cushing's triad and they've got a fixed dilated left pupil. So what, what are the interventions we can do for that person? And we'll start from simplest to the more complex.
0: Well, the simple things you can do immediately at the bedside is, is one, you can raise the, the head of the bed, so make sure the head of the bed is elevated. Uh, something you got to think about with trauma patients, a lot of times they'll have a lot of things around their neck. They'll have C-collars, they'll have other things put in compression on their neck, so make sure that their, their neck is free of anything that's compressing the blood flow. Um, and then uh, a lot of these patients are already intubated, so you can, you can do some mild hyperventilation, especially in the short term, uh, to drive their PCO2 down uh, around 35
2: yeah, 35
0: to 40 range is
2: good. Okay, and then and then we get into the medical interventions we can do. And so what would be the
1: targeted interventions we can do to lower ICP? Um, so one of the, the favorites I've seen, at least in the ERs recently, is the hypertonic saline. Um, as mannitol has gone a little bit out of favor, but I think either of those would be a correct answer on the ab site for lowering ICP. Um, and then additionally always is... Uh, With sedation and paralysis, or and then hyperventilation, are all good ways to help uh, manage, uh, help lower the ICP.
2: Good. So yeah, and so I think it comes down to either hypertonic saline or mannitol for your pharmacologic therapies. Uh, If they give you a scenario where you have a multi-system trauma patient and they've got a bad brain injury, you know, but they're severely injured, let's say they're bleeding, they're hypotensive, then hypertonic saline would be the correct answer because that will resuscitate them and volume expand them as well as lower their ICP. The standard patient isolated head injury, I I think it's either one, dealer's choice, mannitol, and usually one gram per kilogram is fine. Hypertonic saline is fine. Uh, And and how are those lowering ICP?
1: Uh, They are... You know osmotic uh, diuretics essentially, and it's bringing uh, fluid out of the brain into the, the vessels. Good. So so they're both creating a hyperosmotic state,
2: uh, hypertonic saline doing it by increasing your natural regulator of osmolarity, your sodium, and mannitol just introducing a false uh, a a false agent to elevate that. Okay, so some adjuncts to head injury. Uh, how about seizure prophylaxis?
0: Uh, well, it seems like this is changing a lot. Um, it's uh, it's good at preventing. So I think most neurosurgeons nowadays are using it if there is an intracranial bleed, but not necessarily for just blunt head injury. Um, and it's good for preventing you know early seizures, um, those, the seizures that you would see within the first week after the injury.
2: Okay, and and. And there's a difference between what the neurosurgeon will do and what's on the ab site. <laughs> so for the ab site purposes, if, if you have you know, a trauma patient with intracranial hemorrhage and they're asking you about this, the answer will be you give them seizure prophylaxis. And it can either be Dilan or now a lot of places have moved to Keppra. And how long would you do that for?
0: Uh, just a short term like i said i think most people are just doing it for a week post injury
2: yeah so so it's just a week it helps prevent early seizures continuing it has not been shown to prevent uh, longer duration seizures so it's typically short course Um, okay how about feeding these patients
1: uh, just like where everything's going in surgery, early enteral feeding is uh, the best to help prevent brain injury.
2: Good. So enteral feeding within 24 to 48 hours for severe brain injury patients. Uh, obviously, correcting coagulopathy. Many of these patients are on anticoagulants, which actually we'll get to on a, on a later slide. How about steroids for head injury?
1: Uh, there's been shown no benefit um, in these patients. Yeah. How about one step further? It can actually harm them.
2: Yeah, so, so steroids are gone for head injury. And, and if you get this question, it's an easy answer for you. Uh, it's steroids have no benefit. Okay, so we'll talk about one of these patients, 75-year-old female in this motor vehicle collision. And she has a significant intracranial hemorrhage. She's on Coumadin. And her INR is 4.5. So what should we do for that patient in terms of reversing her coagulopathy?
0: Uh, so, you know, so uh, nowadays I, I think the safe answer is even on the upside is PCC. So you give them PCC, you can rapidly and predictably reduce or reverse their coagulopathy. Okay. And and what's PCC for someone who might have never heard of it? Prothrombin uh, complex concentrate.
2: Good. And and what else what else can you give this person?
0: Uh, you can give vitamin K. Um, you could give FFP. Good.
2: So vitamin Vitamin K, I would always give to them. But but I think now the board answer would be PCC for rapid reversal. Um, I, don't, I don't think the dose you would need to know for the ab site. Okay. So now we'll say this patient is on one of the uh, novel oral anticoagulants. So this patient's on Pradaxa, which yeah. is also
1: dabigatran. So, it's a trickier situation, in, the, in where I've been is you we actually start with PCC because you do get some reversal in it, and that's really our only option. Um, if their bleed is uh, severe, um, you can progress on to dialysis. Okay, so for the absite test question, they're on Pradaxa,
2: they've got significant bleeding, what's your answer? Dialysis. Good. That's the one that has to be dialyzed.
1: Um, how about apixaban or rivaroxaban, either one? Yeah. Uh, again there's no antidote and uh PCC gives some partial reversal.
2: Yeah, so so this is the one that PCC will partially reverse so you can consider it. Um actually and I think we're going to be doing critical care, a critical care review, separate session and we'll be talking about those agents in a little more detail. Okay, let's talk about the spine. So obviously we immobilize almost all of our trauma patients. Um, But there are some patients we need imaging and some patients we can clear clinically. And this is also, I think, a favorite question. So who can we clear clinically?
0: So there has to be um, a few things. There has to be no distracting injuries. Uh, They have to be um, examinable. So they have to um, uh, have a a GCS of, uh, say, at least 14, 15. um, Non-negotiable. 15. 15. (laughs) Uh, They have to be not intoxicated. Um, not on any sedating medications. Okay. Um, and then how about their exam and complaints? So they have to have no neurologic, uh, findings on exam. Um, if you know, you know, midline tenderness, if you're talking about clearing somebody's C-spine, uh, no, uh, bony tenderness or midline tenderness, uh, like I said, no, um, no neurologic findings. um,
2: Yeah, those are the big ones. Good. So awake, alert, examinable, no intoxicants, no distracting injury, which means a significantly painful injury that they can't focus on your exam. No midline tenderness, and you can take the collar off. And no neurologic deficits, obviously. Okay, and then if you can't clear them clinically, what's next?
1: Um, There's actually a great review on the... uh, trauma casts about this big debate on c-spine clearance but for the absite, uh plain x-rays flexion extension that's out of favor we don't do those for c-spine injuries um so generally you'll get a ct scan um of their their c-spine to clear their c-spine
2: yeah so the answer in, in today's day and age is ct scan and if they give you a choice of x-rays and clearing uh, that is the wrong answer for adults I'll give that caveat. For pediatric patients, that's still debated a little more. But for adults, that's, that's pretty much been settled. Okay. A favorite of the boards are spinal syndrome, spinal cord injury syndromes. So let's start with central cord syndrome.
1: Which just so this is generally the, the old lady um, who fell who has um, weakness in her arms and otherwise a normal motor exam. Okay, good. So, so
2: can they have weakness in their legs? Yeah, they'll typically have both, but it's the arms are much more affected than the legs, which, which you'll see in almost no other spinal cord injury syndrome. Or it's also called the, the cape and gloves distribution. So it's like a, they're wearing a cape, and that's where their symptoms are. And what's the, what's the underlying pathology? They generally have spinal stenosis. Good. It's, this is the old patient with spinal stenosis who uh, gets a spinal cord contusion. Okay. Okay. Brown-Saccard syndrome, also called hemisection.
0: Yep. So this is a hemisection of the spinal cord. And and, uh, on physical exam, you'll find um, ipsilateral motor deficits and contralateral uh, pain and temperature deficits below the level of the injury. Good. I, again, a, a something
2: you'll see almost nowhere else, and, and pretty uncommon. What's what's the mechanism? It's usually?
0: normally like a stab wound uh,
2: yeah, to it, the spine. Yeah, it's usually a penetrating and, and, and even that stab more than a gunshot wound.
1: Okay, anterior cord syndrome. So anterior cord syndrome, uh, you could see possibly after um, some aortic case um, where they caused uh, malperfusion to the spine. Um, and this is you get um, exclusively motor deficits with anterior cord syndrome. Good. Or, or just a trauma with a vascular injury
2: to the anterior spinal artery. Okay. How about uh, the pediatric patient who comes in and can't move their legs and their spinal imaging is normal?
0: So this is the spinal cord, uh, spinal cord injury without uh, radiographic abnormality. Uh, I think this Good. is um, I think it's becoming less common with the you know uh, the better scanning you know the the, the higher resolution MRIs uh, we're able to pick up some abnormalities so I think it's becoming less common. But
2: okay, and then and then the other pathology just to be aware of in the
0: pediatric population
2: is pseudosubluxation. Uh, and and that's typically where they'll they'll give you a finding where you have a C spine a small amount of subluxation anteriorly but they have no tenderness, they have no neurologic deficit, and, and that's basically that's a normal variant. Pediatric patients can have pseudosubluxation, so no further imaging is required, and you can clear their C-spine. All right, an- another favorite for, for the boards, and just one of my personal favorites in these, is, is the confusing terms about shock, spinal and neurogenic. Okay, so there's always some confusion about spinal shock versus neurogenic shock. So why don't we start with, what's, what's the difference between spinal shock and neurogenic shock? So
0: I, I think a way you can, dis, uh, you can distinguish these is uh, by your autonomic um, uh, reflexes. So with spinal shock, you lose your motor reflexes and um, uh, you, uh, basically the reflexes that are along the spinal cord, but with neurogenic shock. You're losing your autom- autonomic regulation, so you'll get things like bradycardia, hypotension, that type of thing.
2: Yeah, and, and so so the, the big difference is one, one is talking about hemodynamics, and that's neurogenic, and one is talking about your neurologic exam and how bad of a spinal cord injury you have, and that's spinal shock. The way I remember it is you know, when you talk about hemodynamic shock, you talk about septic, cardiogenic, and so I just remember the genic, cardiogenic, and then neurogenic. Those are the hemodynamic ones. And, and neurogenic shock typically presents uh, how? Uh,
1: generally, they have the uh, warm extremities mm-hmm. um, and they're hypotensive and bradycardic. Good. So, yeah. And, and, and
2: if you get a question of they're warm and perfused and hypotensive, that's almost always a spinal cord injury. Now, spinal shock, this is the one that confuses a lot of people. So, spinal shock is in the setting of spinal cord injury, and how do you diagnose spinal shock? Because uh, everyone who, let's just say, everyone who has a bad spinal cord injury, they're paralyzed from the
1: waist down. Some may have spinal shock, some might not. So, uh, one way is you can test their reflexes, such as their bulbul cavernosis reflex, and if that's intact, um, they do not have spinal shock.
2: Good. So So, if they're... Their reflexes, the cavernosis and the cremasteric, are the two most common ones. If those are not present, it means they're in spinal shock. Uh, And those reflexes will come back, even with a complete spinal cord injury, whereas most other reflexes won't. So once their reflexes come back, now they're paralyzed from the waist down and they have a cremasteric reflex, what does that tell you about their spinal cord injury? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Probably a bad thing. Yeah, that tells you that they are not now out of spinal shock, and whatever deficits they have are likely permanent. I see. I see. So, so when you examine someone and they're in spinal shock, you can say, well, some function might come back. We'll have to wait and see. When they're out of spinal shock, their deficits are permanent.
1: So that's the importance of the term spinal shock is determining if it's a – you can – depend on their neuro exam at that time or not yep and once they're out of spinal shock whatever deficits they have are usually permanent
2: okay and that's why it's that's why it's an important part of the exam especially with spine surgeons we'll talk about that a lot okay and so management now so management of spinal injury
0: Uh, i mean first and foremost destabilization and immobilization okay how about steroids uh again no we kind of touched on this but no longer indicated in in trauma um, we actually had a case of this recently where uh with central cord syndrome there's not a lot of good data but uh that uh, some people will still use it for that but for the most part no longer indicated yeah so if you now get an absite question
2: with a typical spinal cord injury and they ask about giving steroids the, the answer is no you don't give steroids um, it's really been shown not to improve outcomes and obviously has some adverse side effects. Okay. A lot of times we like to talk about is this a stable or an unstable fracture? So, so how do we determine stable versus unstable?
1: Uh, so when referring to the spine, um, it's, you have three columns of the spine. And if they have all three columns that are damaged, that would be an unstable fracture. Yeah, and those c- columns
2: correspond to ligaments, right? right? So, so the rule is usually you have to have two of the three columns disrupted, two. which means two of the three major ligaments disrupted, and that's unstable. And what type of injuries will usually give you that? We'll just say blunt or penetrating.
1: Blunt. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. Very, very uncommon to have an unstable penetrating spine injury. Okay, so real quick, respiratory issues in spinal cord injury. Um, what are the spinal cord levels that control the diaphragm? Um, C three, four, and five. Good. So sometimes on the site they'll give you a patient who's got a high cervical cord injury, um, but they're they're breathing okay. You know, they're they might be a little tachypneic and their sats are ninety two percent. And what do you want to do with that patient?
1: Um, if they're they're breathing okay, I mean the concern is that they need to be intubated. Um, but if they have if if the chest X ray shows that their diaphragm is intact and you know working, they don't necessarily need to be intubated. I would think. Yeah,
2: and and what will happen with those people in terms of how how will they fail from respiratory standpoint?
1: Will they come in in respiratory distress? No, because they can use their um, other muscles of respiration initially, and then they'll wear out. Yeah, so they they often have
2: a slow insidious, and twelve hours later they're having a respiratory arrest. So generally, somebody above a C four. Uh, usually we just innovate them um, and then evaluate them and see whether they need a tracheostomy or not later okay let's uh, move on down from the head to the neck uh, penetrating neck trauma um, again another favorite board question although I think it's becoming less relevant clinically is the zones of the neck when we talk about penetrating neck trauma um,
1: so what are the zones of the neck just anatomically uh, so the zones of the neck uh it goes in reverse order of and you start at, in the chest with the great vessels from the the clavicle to the cricoid um and then it goes from from there you have zone two which primarily as far as vessels go contains the carotid again you have the esophagus and trachea and that goes up to the base of the mandible um the angle of the mandible i'm sorry and then zone three is the zone that we can't reach and can't really operate on um and that's from the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull and that has the the carotids with the pharynx and the larynx okay good
2: good so and the uh, yeah from the angle of the mandible up so obviously a small space and, and what part of the neck are we talking about anterior lateral posterior um generally anterior and lateral yeah. So remember, this doesn't apply to posterior neck. So so we're talking about the really the anterior and the lateral neck. Okay. And what are the structures we're worried about in the neck? Any question about the neck is is generally going to come down to one of these three or four structures.
0: Uh, so I mean, the neck is is tiger country. So you have a lot of high you know high stakes real estate. You have great vessels. Your carotids, esophagus, trachea, um, and those are those are pretty much the main ones that you're Good. looking for,
2: and, and those are those are the those are the three that you're really worrying about and trying to figure out if they're injured. So the the vessels, the carotid or jugular, the esophagus, and the trachea, right? The aerodigestive tract or vessels. All right. So the patient comes in and they have a penetrating neck
1: injury and they're hypotensive um, with an isolated uh, penetrating. A neck injury that patient would need to go to the operating room immediately
2: yeah so that's an easy answer they're, they're unstable you take them to the operating room and do a neck exploration okay now they have hard signs of a vascular injury
1: uh, that patient would also need to go directly to the operating room
2: okay and we can talk about hard signs when we get
1: to extremity stuff uh, now they don't have those um so th- Depending on platysma violation or not, um, those patients will likely get a, a CT, a neck angiogram. Okay, and, and you
2: made a great point. So if it hasn't violated the platysma, if you're able to tell that, then you wouldn't even ca- characterize that as a penetrating neck injury. If it has violated the platysma, um, then you really have a couple options on how to proceed uh, based on your exam. So remember, you want to do a full exam. And you want to look for other signs of an injury. And what are some of those other signs? We already said hard signs of an injury are easy. You go to the OR. Right. What are some of the other signs that might not mean you need to go to the OR, but you need further evaluation?
1: Um, Maybe if they had a motor deficit. um, Good. If they had a hematoma of some
2: sort. Good. uh, So soft signs of vascular injury. So a non-expanding hematoma. Um, Crepitus. Good. How about air coming from the wound? So yeah. air coming from the wound. And then the other ones are any signs of hemoptysis or hematemesis. Uh, all those need you at least need to do some further workup. And, and in 20, we'll say 2017, this will be when they're taking their ab sites. What's the evaluation of choice? It is a CT neck Angiogram. Yeah, we used to talk a lot about triple endoscopy and bronchoscopy, esophagoscopy, and angiography. Um, now, I, I think the screening study is a CT scan of the neck, uh, including a CT angiogram uh, that gives you the carotid vessels. And then you can base further workup on that. If you have a high suspicion for an esophageal injury, so, you have, say, some hematemesis, or, or you think there's some air from the wound, or they're having uh, you know, trouble swallowing, then what would you do? Uh,
1: then we would need an EGD. Yeah,
2: and, and this, and some people would say a, a swallow study, so okay. an esophagram. So, it would either be an esophagram or an esophagoscopy. Uh, but otherwise, the CT scan is your initial study of choice. Okay, so you decide you need to explore this neck. What's your incision, the approach for standard penetrating
1: neck trauma? Uh, So, similar to a, if it's a unilateral neck trauma, I would do a large incision along the sternocleidomastoid. Middle of it, posterior border? I'm sorry,
2: anterior border. Good. So, right along anterior border, sternocleidomastoid, uh, essentially from the, uh, almost from the base of the ear down to the sternal notch. And what are you exploring? what structures
1: um so initially i'll be focused on the the blood vessels the jugular and the carotid um and then uh, i would move to the trachea um and then uh, as much of the esophagus as you can get to from that
2: good and and those are your big structures you're looking at same as you are worried about you know on the workup um and which which side of the neck would it be easier to explore the esophagus the left side good and, and that's also sometimes a question much it's easier to get to the esophagus from the left side so so if you have to do an esophageal exploration left side is easier you can do it from either side though okay now we'll say you had this patient who got stabbed in the neck didn't have any hard signs uh, you got a swallow study and you see a small leak of contrast uh, coming from the esophagus and you explore them uh, but you don't see an esophageal injury see a little bit of inflammation but no injury
0: uh the, for that i would i would probably just leave i would just widely drain the area and leave drains good
2: uh, i mean you do everything you can to identify the injury but if you can't see it you just leave a closed suction drain and close okay so now you've found a four centimeter esophageal laceration how do you how do you want to repair this
0: um, so I want to make sure that I see, you know, the mucosal extent of my injury, um, and then I'll repair it in two layers. Um, so I'd repair with, a, um, you know, an inner layer of an absorbable suture, 4-0 or 5-0, absorbable suture, and an outer layer of a permanent suture. Yeah, and so how do you ensure that
2: you've seen the entire mucosal?
0: Uh, a lot of times you'll have, to extend, you'll have to extend the myotomy.
2: Good. Yeah, so the answer is you, you extend the myotomy enough to see the entire mucosal defect, and then you do the suture repair. So let's talk about a little bit about esophageal perforation. So, is is there any such thing as non-operative management of esophageal perforations?
1: On the ab side, I don't believe so.
2: Well, there there are some situations where you can do non-operative management. Um, What types of injuries do you think would be amenable to non-operative management?
1: Um, I believe, uh, you know, the small contained. maybe from a dilation on an eGD or something like that yeah Uh,
2: good but and far far and away it's the endoscopic injuries that you can manage non-operatively and and what are your criteria for see for an injury that you think could be managed non-operatively we'll start off with location
1: location so it would have to be
2: and we'll, we'll, we'll clarify so the esophagus really has three zones right cervical thoracic and abdominal. So, which of those would you not manage
1: non operatively? Intraabdominal.
2: Yeah, so an intra abdominal, you usually cannot manage that non operatively. So it's usually cervical or thoracic. Okay. And which of those would you manage non operatively?
1: Um, so if it was small, it was contained, the patient um, was not septic in appearance, mm-hmm. um, didn't have a large uh, pleural effusion, um, and then no distal obstruction. And no kind of cancer pathology that. Good. Good. Um,
2: and th- those are criteria outlined by Cameron. Um, so you want to get a swallow study and you want to see a small contained perforation. They, they characterize it. You want to see the flow of the contrast back into the lumen of the esophagus. No communication with the pleural space and no distal obstruction or, or pathology. Uh, the patient's stable and has no signs of sepsis. And th- those are the ones that you can manage non operatively. And,
1: and how would you do that? So generally, you want to get drainage of the area, um, so um, potentially a chest tube um, to help. Well, no, they, they have no
2: communication with the pleural space. Okay. They're fine. What are you going to do to treat them non nonoperatively? Um, NPO. Good. Antibiotics. Good. There you go. NPO and antibiotics, and then you get a repeat swallow study at some interval. Okay. Let's move on to blunt neck trauma. So you have a high speed motor vehicle collision patient and they have an acute mental status decline and you get a head CT and it's normal. What else would you be worried about?
1: Uh, you have two vascular structures that go to the brain that could be injured um, in these patients.
2: Good. So blunt cerebrovascular vascular injury, uh, particularly in someone who has an unexplained neurologic or mental status deficit and you're worried about the carotids of the vertebrals. Um, so you have the patient who has symptoms, so they they deteriorated neurologically, or they essentially present with deficits similar to a stroke. You're worried about a carotid injury. That's easy. Those are the ones you evaluate. How about patients that have no symptoms, no neurologic deficits? Is there anyone we should screen for a blunt cerebral
1: vascular injury? So um – Yes. So if they have uh, fractures, either a cervical spine fracture, a base of skull fracture, severe facial fractures, a seatbelt sign above the clavicle, and then and then also the patients that have uh, GCS less than eight or infarcts on head CT um, would be some of the highest yield good. patients good and so
2: so any of those patients we should be screening them for a blunt cerebrovascular injury and, and the big ones are the high risk fractures that are right around the carotid vessels and the vertebral vessels right so c-spine uh, base of the skull and mandible um, the Lafort fractures uh, seat belt sign as you mentioned also on exam if you hear a cervical brewery or a thrill Or feel a thrill then uh, those are all criteria and how would you screen them again it's 2017 how would we screen them
1: Um, CTA
2: yeah CT has has clearly become the screening study of choice Uh, this was a debate up until at least a couple years ago angio versus CT and and CT scan is now the study of choice where are these blunt cerebrovascular injuries usually located
1: so for the carotid artery it's uh, for both of them they're both distal um, in the carotid and it's um, in an area that's not surgically accessible, generally.
2: Good. So it's usually distal internal carotid, and yeah. in which, again, it's it's difficult to assess surgically, which is
1: usually why we do not do much intervention. And what would your treatment be? Uh, so generally, um, just an antiplatelet um, is all that will be needed, and sometimes anticoagulation. If it's uh, a large enough dissection or progressing um, injury, they could maybe need an endovascular stent.
2: Good. Yeah, so generally, you know, for the standard dissection of the internal carotid, your treatment is usually an antiplatelet agent or anticoagulation. Um, There is now a role for endovascular intervention, and that would usually be for a a pseudoaneurysm or an AV fistula. I think an AV fistula, that's the one where there's clearly a role for endovascular intervention. Okay, so let's keep on moving down the body and get to thoracic trauma
1: so flail chest how, how would we define a flail chest uh so for a flail chest you have to have uh three consecutive ribs with fractures in two places that can create a flail segment
2: good and what's the cause of that patient's hypoxia
1: um the cause is just pain and not um breathing well enough so so and this this
2: is also this was also a favorite board question um the actual cause, usually, of the hypoxia, is it is it the flail segment? Is it the paradoxical motion? No. So what is it? So it's usually the underlying pulmonary contusion. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, so they'll give you a question where they ask, you know, about the cause of the patient's hypoxia, and it's not the flail segment, it's not the paradoxical motion. It's usually because they have an underlying pulmonary contusion.
1: So management? Um, so... Like all chest trauma patients, you need good pain control. Um, and Which like, would usually be what for a, a flail chest? An, ep- an epidural. Yeah, epidural is your pain control of choice. Yeah, um, And then um, if it's severe enough and they have a severe enough contusion, you would consider early intubation. Um, and then potentially if they do have a paradoxical motion um, and severe pain, you could consider uh, plating them.
2: Okay, good. Um, now we'll talk about the patient who car crash and they slammed into their steering wheel and now they're they're hypotensive and you know that you have clearly identified that they are not bleeding they have no other injuries you can identify other than they've got a pretty good sternal fracture uh, and they're they're throwing some PBCs so what are you concerned about
1: uh so then I'm concerned about blunt cardiac injury in this patient good and what would you do to confirm that um I think I would, I would get an echo um, to confirm. So first you start with the EKG.
2: Good. Um, so the most common finding right. is an EKG abnormality. Right. And confirmation would be with an echocardiogram. You can check troponins, although that that's controversial in this, and, and I don't think that would be an upside answer. And for
1: I, I've definitely seen questions on this, and the answer at first is EKG. Yeah. EKG, yeah, EKG. The answer is always EKG yeah. for cardiac
2: contusion. Okay. And then just to round it out, so pulmonary contusions patient comes in and has a big pulmonary contusion what's the typical history of that going to be over the first couple days
1: uh generally um on day two um they you know or day three uh they'll it'll blossom when they are fluids are mobilizing and um they'll have a kind of an ards like picture in that that side of the lung good so the typical pattern is it it'll
2: progress 24 to 48 hours later is when they'll usually uh, have their worst point and get hypoxic okay so i get the same patient car crash slammed the steering wheel and you think they have a blunt aortic injury so so what would lead you to suspect a blunt aortic injury
1: so for a blunt aortic injury, um, the mechanism is a is a strong way, um, chest trauma um, hitting the steering wheel. If they had a widened median, mediastinum, um, if they have a hemothorax on one side, um, if they had maybe a recurrent laryngeal nerve paralysis would be kind of a zebra reason um, to be concerned about that. Okay. Uh, so, so typically you'll have some concerning chest X-ray
2: findings, and you mentioned one widened mediastinum. Um, there's, there's probably at least 10 to 12 chest x ray right. findings. Uh, wide mediastinum would be the most common one. What would some other ones be?
1: Um, the aortic knob um, is obscured. In, obscured. Um, you could have uh, like pneumomediastinum.
2: Yeah, that wouldn't really be for a blunt aortic injury, though. Um, uh, and, and it's all related to you have blood building up uh, right. around that aortic arch. So you have arch. a little
1: blush in the top of the chest that has it's, a pseudonym. So uh, that's
2: called an apical cap. Apical cap. Um, it'll push the left main stem bronchus down. So okay. you have depression of the left main stem bronchus. What's it going to do to the mediastinum?
1: Um, it can... Com- press the mediastinum and cause
2: so it'll push it to the right, right. so you'll have rightward deviation of the mediastinum those are the big ones and then possibly an associated left pleural effusion if the blood is, is communicated with the left chest so what are you going to do to confirm that diagnosis uh, in 2017 <laughs> uh, a CTA <laughs> good and again the, the diagnostic study of choice now
1: is a CT angiogram for blunt aortic injury
2: where's the tear going to be
1: uh, just distal to the uh, ligamentum arteriosum
2: which is where uh,
1: uh, it's in the. Using your
2: vessel landmarks.
1: Just distal to subclavian artery.
2: Good. Which subclavian? I'm sorry, the left subclavian. Good. So, yeah. So, for the ones we're talking about, it's always distal to the left subclavian. Um, you can also get injury at the aortic root or at the diaphragmatic hiatus. Those are less common. So, but when we're talking about the standard blunt thoracic aortic injury, that's where the injury is. So, what's your answer going to be on managing this patient? Give me, so, in, in two words, um, what's your therapy going to be for this patient uh, initially? Blood pressure control. Good. With
1: what? Uh, beta blockers. Good.
2: So, yeah. So remember, these, these are no longer. Rush them to the operating room immediately and crack them open. It's managing their blood pressure, and typically your first agent is going to be a beta blocker. That, that's an easy answer for the ab site. And what are our options now if we think this needs to be repaired? There's really two, two options.
1: Um, So you have the endovascular option of a T-VAR, essentially, to seal the defect. And then you still have your uh, potential open thoracic graft that you could place. Good. So you can do an open repair or an endovascular repair.
2: And I think endovascular has now become the preferred approach for most of these. But if you do have to do an open, how would you do it?
1: I would do a uh, left posterior lateral thoracotomy potentially thorco abdominal incision um, if depending on how big my graft would need to be um, and place a uh, a graph that way okay
2: but what would you do as an adjunct just, would you just clamp? Clamp?
1: No, I'd get cardiac bypass. Yeah. So
2: the answer the answer today is for for an open, I think, would be left heart bypass. Right. So your options either going to be the answer on your ab site is either going to be if they're leading you towards an open, it's going to be a left posterolateral thoracotomy with left heart bypass, or it's going to be an endovascular graft. And what are the big risks that we worry about with when we fix these? Uh, paralysis. Good. And higher with open or endovascular?
1: Um, open.
2: Yeah, so the rate seems to be definitely higher with an open approach. Okay, endovascular repair, which
1: patients are candidates for it? So they have to have adequate uh, inflow vessels to be able to access the um, thoracic aorta. They have to be stable to some extent. Good. Uh,
2: and, and and really, that's it. This used to be it was the lousy open candidates who you do an endovascular or the high risk, and now I think it's it's the standard. So it's really, if you're physically unable to shove that graft in there, it's probably about the only real contraindication now. Okay, another favorite question. You do an endovascular repair for this injury, and it's post-up day one, and the patient's
1: left hand is now cold and and turning dusky. Right. It always makes me nervous because they generally cover the left subclavian. And so when you're covering left subclavian with the T-var graft, it can sometimes cause this problem. And uh, the treatment for this would be a carotid to subclavian bypass. Good. This is
2: another one of those. You should know the answer as you're reading the question. The answer is carotid subclavian bypass. Um, fortunately, this happens relatively uncommonly, even even with covering the left subclavian. Most patients will not require that. Okay. So you now have this thoracic trauma patient. You put a chest tube in.
1: And what would make you go to the operating room in terms of bleeding? So if I had an initial uh, chest tube output, I think of 1,500. uh, So let's start.
2: What's the first thing that would drive you to the operating room?
1: um, And and it's not hypotensive.
0: Yeah.
2: So hemodynamic instability, and and you don't have another identified source. Good. And then in terms of output. Um, So the initial output, I believe, is 1,500. Yeah, and I think that would be the one that would be the, the... board answer would be right. greater
1: than 1500 initially and then um I, I think hourly it's over like a four hour period if it averages over about 300 cc's per hour yeah m-
2: most would say 200 an hour for okay. four hours so so just think a total of 800
1: cc's okay. so 200 an
2: hour for four hours or 100 an hour for eight hours okay um, but so in if you general, hit 800
1: cc's you go to the or yeah,
2: in general ongoing bleeding yeah. Okay, uh, you have a question about an elderly patient who fell and they've got five rib fractures. And what are you going to do with that patient? And uh, your options are discharge
1: them home with an oral regimen, admit them to the ward, admit them to the ICU. The patient has a very high mortality, um, so they're going to be admitted to the ICU. Good. So rib fractures in
2: elderly patients now, I mean, we, we've now realized that's a high, high morbidity and mortality group. And what else are you going to do for them?
1: Uh, you're going to uh, consider either a rib block, depending on what your anesthesia is comfortable with, rib block versus epidural good in these patients.
2: Okay, so now you have this thoracic trauma patient and you get some imaging and they've got a diaphragmatic rupture.
1: Uh, so the patient, you would stabilize them first uh, and take them to the operating room and generally I would uh, perform an, a laparotomy on them. And fix their diaphragm with uh, some prosthetic mesh if needed okay. um, through the diaphragm. And what's the common associated injury they're gonna have usually with a,
2: let's say they have a left diaphragm rupture? What else is typically uh, injured? Their spleen. Good. Yeah,
0: you almost okay. always see that with a splenic laceration.